Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 96. I do hope you're all having a wonderful start to the new year. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so great to have your company. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in December. A very warm welcome to Natasha, Debbie, Amy, Denise, Mel, Joe, Yuri, Caroline and Rhonda. And I also would like to welcome a number of others who joined up without identifying their first names. So I apologize for not being able to name you. I am, however, so grateful for your support and immense generosity. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider supporting the work I do by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. January's prize is a copy of Rebecca Monet's beautiful Anne Boleyn paper doll colouring book and a one-month membership to the highest tier of Inside Hever Castle, a new online subscription that allows you to explore this magnificent historic property from the comfort of your home. If you've been considering supporting the work I do, then I think this is the perfect time to join. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Henry VIII's health is Kyra Kramer. Kyra is a medical anthropologist, historian and devoted bibliophile who lives just outside Cardiff, Wales with her handsome husband, two wonderful daughters, a magnificent trans son and three very weird rescue dogs. Ms Kramer has authored several history books and academic essays and has recently begun writing fiction as well. You can visit her website at kyrakramer.com to learn more about her life and work. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tudors, Kyra. How are you? I am fine, Natalie. It's nice to be on. Fantastic. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. I am very well. So perhaps a good place to start is by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Well, my name is Kyra Cornelius Kramer, and my background is actually, strangely enough, in medical anthropology. But while studying medical anthropology in graduate school, talking to a colleague, I have always been a history buff, and we were discussing Henry VIII. And she said, oh, I thought Anne Boleyn was rhesus negative, and that's why she lost her babies. And I said, well, it's much more complex than that. He had six wives, and three of those were documented reproductive partners, and yet his reproductive outcomes, I mean, what were the odds of him marrying three women with rhesus negative so that actually made her curious. And she, she was a bioarchaeologist. I don't know if they call them bioarchaeologists everywhere, but bioarchaeologists, they specialize in human anatomy and archaeology. So it's as close to medical school as you're ever going to go without going to medical school. And so that just made her curious. So she cracked open a medical textbook and said, oh, I... I think I know what may have caused this. And I was like, ha ha ha, that's great. Let me know if it might have made him crazy too. Um, And she goes, well, oddly enough. So um, from that, I wound up writing an article with her, Dr. Katrina Banks-Whitley, wound up writing an article for the historical journal, Cambridge, of all things, about the theory that um, Henry VIII possibly had Kell-positive blood type and attendant McLeod syndrome. And from there, I've just sort of never looked back about applying medical anthropology to history. It's just, once you, once you see one sick king, you see them all. <laughs> Fantastic. It sounds fascinating. So you've also written a book, and I'll just let our listeners know. So that's called Henry VIII's Health in a Nutshell. So was it your, your friend's kind of questioning and curiosity that got you interested in that subject then? Well, you know, strangely enough, my first book, Blood Will Tell, The Medical Mystery of Henry VIII's, The Tyranny of Henry VIII, actually is an outshoot of the fact the paper that we wrote for the Cambridge Historical Journal was only about, could only be about 20,000 words, although they did allow it to go over considering the material. But then that left me with about 100,000 words of material I'd researched because I have Asperger's syndrome, which is a form of autism. So when we research, when people of my tribe research, we research the way someone going downhill skiing goes Zoom. So with all that extra research, I was like, oh, this is so interesting to me. It might be interesting to other history buffs, which is where both Blood Will Tell and Henry VIII in a Nutshell and all that came from. It was just from my researches. There was just so much left. And then Dr. Banks-Whitley had moved on to studying radium in the Southwest, so it wasn't her field anymore. So it, it just became my area. And from that, I wound up studying more and more about the tutors, and I developed ideas about what may have caused Henry VIII's sons to die so young. The ones that made it into teenagehood, they died. So it just became very complex. Yes, absolutely. So before we dive into to your theories about um, Henry VIII being killed positive and, and that sort of thing, I thought maybe it'd be good just to touch on Henry's health as a young man. Did he suffer ah. from any you know, serious health conditions as a, as a young guy? 
No, the the thing is, is most people, as I'm sure you know, most people who know the Tudors lightly think of Henry VIII only in as an obese tyrant, but he was only a tyrant after the age of 40, and he was only obese during the last maybe eight years of his life. Before that, he was probably, to, to think of Australia, he was probably closer to Chris Helmsworth. And um, so if you could imagine as a youth, he, he jousted, he was incredibly athletic, and he was described by one ambassador as having a face pretty enough to be that of a woman's. He was just that pretty. So imagine like Chris Helmsworth or Chris Evans or one of these other um, stars who are known for their good looks. Imagine them also being a polymath because he was good at languages. He was good at math. He was good at engineering. He could outshoot some of his Welsh bowmen. And if to, to even pull a Welsh longbow, mm. I'm currently living in Wales and I've had the privilege of meeting someone who does um, medieval archery um, for fun. And if I stood on a Welsh longbow and attached the other end to a car, I could maybe pull it, provided I could get it into third gear. But otherwise, it's not happening unless you are built like a Helmsworth. So Henry VIII was incredibly healthy, incredibly beautiful, incredibly intelligent, and incredibly physically fit. But all we remember is sort of the, you know, who it might remind um, anybody who's my age or older, Marlon Brando. If you think of him in a streetcar named Desire, he started an entire trend about undershirts because of his gloriousness. And then you sort of think of him at the very end of his life when, you know, he moved very differently and looked very differently. Henry VIII underwent the same sort of transformation from beefcake to just cake, if that makes sense. It does. And so in your book, Kyra, you suggest that Henry VIII may have had a Kell positive blood type. So could you explain to our listeners what this is and what effect this would have had on Henry VIII and his unborn children? Okay, so most people are aware that your blood comes in different types. There's A, there's B, or there's O. Although funny story, originally that was zero and somebody misread it as O. So there you go. So you either have type A, type B, type AB, or type O. However, what most people don't know if they don't do medical stuff is that there's a lot of other antigens that can be a you know part of your blood um, and live on your red blood cell and, and cause uh, either benefits or havoc, depending. And one of those antigens is Kel. Now in the white population, it's about 10% of the population have Kel antigen in Northern Europe. It's much, much less in Africa and Sub-Saharan Africans. So it might be something that we got from Neanderthals. Who knows, the more we find out about um, archeology span and our own physiology, the more bones they dig up, the more we discover what we don't know. But for whatever the reason, there is a Kell antigen. But if a a woman has the Kell antigen and her reproductive partner does not, and she becomes pregnant. Her body, which has the Kell antigen, if it detects no Kell antigen on the fetus, it doesn't care. And so it leaves the fetus alone and your body does the uh, normal not rejection of the fetus. Most people don't realize what a miracle it is that anyone carries any pregnancy to term 
uh, that, that mammals even exist. One of the big mysteries in medical anthropology is why do mammals exist? Because why doesn't the body reject alien tissue? Because once you combine genes, your fetus is an alien tissue, whether you're a rabbit or human. So, you know, for 99.9% for .9 of the time, a woman's body is like, oh, well, you know, this is alien tissue, but it's my baby. I'm going to keep it. Now, if the woman is Cal negative, and remember 90% of women would be, if a woman is Cal negative and she becomes pregnant by a Cal positive man, which, you know, I, I suspect that Henry VIII was, if the fetus inherits the Cal positive gene, the very first fetus, her body thinks, well, that's odd, and it becomes something we call alloimmunized, which means it starts making antibodies the same way you do for a vaccine. When they give you a COVID vaccine, hopefully, which we'll all be getting soon, when you, and that'll be a very 2020 tell, uh, when you get a vaccine, it basically just trains your immune system that, you know, what kind of white blood cells it needs to go and attack or what bl white blood cells it needs to use to attack. They, they can respond then. Well, after the first pregnancy, if she becomes pregnant again with a Cal-positive fetus, if a fetus inherits the Cal-positive gene from the father, the next pregnancy, any pregnancy that's Cal-positive after that, her body will attack as though it's alien tissue, which means that unfortunately in times before just recent modern medicine, you know, you miscarried or had a stillbirth at about eight months. So you, you would go over 35 weeks, but your body would kill your baby without your consent and nothing you could do about it would kill your baby because, you know, it's little organs and stuff just couldn't survive the lysing that was happening of the red blood cells within it because, and it's just, it's, it can still be very risky nowadays but they, and there's not as much known about it because it is such a rare condition. I actually have women that contact me as though I am a, a real doctor, for lack of a better word. And I'm always like, look, this is what I know, but your, your OBGYN will know much more. It's just so scary and it's so hard. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever suffered a reproductive problem. I unfortunately had some issues my first few pregnancies. My husband is a type one diabetic which means there's a higher rate of miscarriage for um, the reproductive partners of men with type 1 diabetes due to some issues that can go on with spermatogenesis, which is the making of sperm. You can get pregnant with crazy sperm. It just doesn't make a baby. So that's heartbreaking enough. And there's obviously nothing that either partner is doing wrong. You can imagine the confusion and distress felt by poor cat, especially Catherine of Aragon. I mean, she had documented at least six pregnancies. She had suspected many, many more. She would have been miscarrying any, any miscarriage before 20 weeks. They just probably wouldn't have reported because the baby would not have believed to have been insulated, which means it, it wouldn't have thought to have a soul yet before 20 weeks. So miscarriages before 20 weeks, no one tried to baptize them. No one buried them in little coffins. No one, they assumed God had not yet given them a soul. The ones that she lost after 20 weeks, even if they didn't name them, which was considered perhaps rejecting God's will, giving in too much to grief. It's not that they didn't feel the kind of pain that a modern parent would. It's just they had very different ways 
of coping with that emotional agony, but some of them lived long enough to be named and she still lost them and she lost them from conditions she couldn't do anything about and had everything to do with the man that she loved tremendously. Yeah, that's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? That all those it um, is all those losses. Now, interestingly, and you've you've touched on this a little. I also read that kelp positive people, especially men, have a higher risk of developing a disease called McLeod syndrome, which you mentioned. So, can you talk to us a little bit about how this works? Well, um, most of the time, if you if you physically manifest the phenotype for kelp positive blood, you're less likely to actually show the McLeod syndrome. It's if you have Kell positive blood and develop McLeod syndrome, you probably haven't had reproductive issues, but sometimes those two things dovetail. And I actually have had a few doctors email me saying, oh, you can't have McLeods and Kells at the same time. And I have to send them the research by other physicians that says, yes, yes, you can. Because remember, medical information doubles every five years. So if you've graduated med school three years ago, there's already a ton of information out there that you haven't been exposed to. And this is the reason most people specialize. No one human being that's not, you know, Mr. Spock from Star Trek, who's half Vulcan, can get all of that information. So there's a lot of confusion about it too. But McLeod syndrome is a, is a strange beast. It can present, they don't know why. No one knows why. It suddenly magically quote unquote, turns on at the, around the 40th birthday, anywhere from 38 to 42. But there's something about the the 40th birthday that acts as sort of a biological trigger to turn on McLeod syndrome. And then the McLeod syndrome can manifest in so many ways that it's been mistaken for Parkinson's disease because it attacks the same ganglia and you develop tremors and the, the absent mindedness that can be associated with early onset Parkinson's. Or it has been misdiagnosed as schizophrenia because it changes the personality so radically. We are all individuals, but if you think of it as our our software in our computer system has to come through hardware. So it's like if you were suddenly trying to run a computer program that's designed for Apple through Microsoft, it glitches. So that is why I think that Henry VIII's personality before 40, he was actually quite easily bullied by his wives or his wife at the time. Part of the reason I think Catherine of Aragon felt free to cut up so rough about the divorce is she felt completely secure in the fact that he would be a gentleman about it. Then after 40, to everyone's surprise, he was no longer a gentleman. And by the age of 45, he had become the head chopping maniac that we remember from history. But for the first 45 years of his life, nice guy. The next, <laughs> that from 45 to his death, not good, not good at all. But it could have been McLeod syndrome. It would have caused a change in personality that great. The alternative is, and this is also a very good theory that is not, not mine, but one that I, I support and think highly of, is are you familiar with something called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy? which I have trouble pronouncing because no, I have forgotten. That is a mouthful. No, I can't say I am. Uh, well, that's why I call it CTE. Um, and I think that's why physicians call it CTE. <laughs> but it happens to uh, American football players, rugby players, um, anybody who's in a sport vigorous enough to cause your brain to sort of rattle around in your head occasionally. 
like jousting, where you might take a big stick to the face every so often, or, you know, he was an avid hunter, and when hunter on horses that jump, none of your landings are ever particularly easy. So if you sort of get these subgrade concussions, they're not full concussions. They're just hard enough inside your head to cause just a teeny bit of bleeding. Now that over after a time, that teeny bit of bleeding, it just sort of builds up and builds up and builds up until now you've got squishy bruised parts of your brain. And um, people in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation and stuff have suddenly at the age of 30 snapped and killed, you know, after no history of violent behavior, have snapped and killed their wives and family. And then when the autopsy's done, they had advanced CTE. Football players have had advanced CTE. It can look like early onset dementia, but it can also cause violence and other things. So I think it is just as likely, and unfortunately we can't dig him up and find out, it is possible he had CTE. He's, he's quite at risk of that. But to me, it is very suspicious that he would suddenly develop CTAE at, on his 40th birthday, which is very indicative of McLeod syndrome. So unfortunately, there's no way to tell without being able to do a DNA sample, which would let us know he had Cal positive blood. But, you know, they don't just let you dig up kings willy-nilly because you want to. Of course. Yes. Well, you've, you've given us a lot to think about, but there's a few other sort of things that you hear, you know, being thrown around mm-hmm. online and on the internet about Henry VIII's health, which I wanted to ask you about. One sure, sure. is, of course, people suggest that he may have suffered from syphilis. Or the other thing I wanted to ask you was, have you ever seen any evidence to suggest that he may have been impotent as well? Well, the syphilis thing, the thing about if Henry VIII had syphilis and if syphilis had made him crazy at 40, most of his, you know, most of his children, especially ones conceived later of life, uh, and especially his daughters, his daughters lived well into the age where if they had been exposed to syphilis as, as fetuses, they would have manifested the unfortunate side effects with that, um, which often involve mental um, disability. And also if Henry had gotten syphilis early enough to have affected Catherine of Aragon's pregnancies, because remember she's the one that suffered the bulk of it when he was still in his twenties, then he lived well into the age where he would have been manifesting third stage or tertiary syphilis. And people of that time period wouldn't, they weren't medically advanced the way we are, but they would notice if your nose fell off. Nose falling off, your hair falling off, your genitals rotting away. These are things that are noticeable to the, the medieval physician and a medieval physician would have known immediately what it was. King Francis I of France, was a very well-known sufferer of syphilis. This stuff didn't get hidden, especially in men. It was just assumed sort of a hazard pay for them getting to chase anything in a skirt. I think they tried some of the treatments for syphilis like Chinese wood, just because they were so desperate to figure out what was wrong with his health, but there was no indications that he actually had syphilis. However, for the Victorians especially, it fit this conception in Victorian mentality that um, venereal disease was a punishment from God. And I lived through the 80s, so I remember this argument about AIDS back in the day. So this belief in Victorian times that it is suitable for bad people to receive venereal disease is one of the reasons why it just sort of won't let go of Henry VIII. It seems fitting. He cheated on his wives. He killed some of his wives. Ha ha ha. He gets syphilis. 
it doesn't work like that. There's porn stars with no venereal disease. The nice lady next door maybe, you know, have had to deal with it. It, it just is random that way. So no, there's no evidence that he actually had syphilis. Now, you've already alluded to the fact that Henry was, of course, an excellent and very keen, enthusiastic sportsman, which, of course, meant, like, you know, all sports people today, that he suffered a number of sporting injuries. So can you tell us, there were some main ones, some some biggies that happened to him. Can you tell us about these ones and their long-term effect on his health? Well, some of the little ones may have had a long-term effect on his health as well. With jousting, and the jumping, you know, because he, he would hunt for hours, hours and hours, cross country, on horseback, very vigorous. There is a condition when you, when you land on a horse like that or you're holding on to the saddle when jousting, the long bones, the femur, you know, the long bones of your thighs, you know, if they get knocked about and bruised sort of internally, they can actually form little tiny splinters. And those little splinters, and it's called, can get infected. And that's called osteomyelitis. And your bone is not actually broken. It's just injured just enough for the bone marrow to become infected. So when you get osteomyelitis nowadays, they give you, you know, some pretty hardcore antibiotics and you go about your merry way. In Henry VIII's time, it would have just gotten worse and worse until the bones started forming little splinters that would rise to the surface and cause ulcers in your skin. So Henry VIII very famously had ulcers on his legs, on his upper thighs. And that's where a lot of the belief that he had syphilis came from, you know, these ulcers high on his thighs. But it was most likely to be osteomyelitis, the result of repeated sports injuries to his upper thigh, his upper bones, his long bones. And then of course, I've already mentioned the CTE. The, the jumping, a horse jumping over a log and landing hard would not have helped his brain not rattle, but probably the most significant uh, source of injury to his skull would have been taking a giant jousting stick to the face. If you've ever actually seen people jousting for quote unquote for real, like uh, trying to reenact it, they're thundering at each other on huge horses, not tiny horses. These are not Shetland ponies. These are big horses. And then they're whacking each other just as hard as they can with a long pole. And they're aiming if they're, they're trying very hard to hit each other in the face. There's no armor that will prevent physics. If an object coming at you hits you very hard and you're going the other way, the energy, the kinetic energy between those two objects has to go somewhere. And unfortunately, one of those places it can go through is through your brain, leaving these tiny micro bruises, injuring the brain and possibly developing over time erosion, for lack of a better way of putting it, in the frontal lobes where you keep your personality. The frontal lobe is where we keep our software for our personality. That gets damaged, we get damaged. So he could have sustained a lot of injuries from the little things that wouldn't have been obvious at first. However, he did have a couple of very big, very notable injuries that caused him to stop jousting. And one of it is he was getting very close to 40 with one of those injuries. And he, Henry VIII was very bad about never admitting that he was no longer a young man. And jousting, like rugby and any other professional sport of that level, is a young man's game. So he was knocked off his, okay, so when he was in his 20s, 
he failed to put his visor down once and got hit in the head and it could have killed him, but it didn't. Now, the Henry that was in his 20s, he immediately forgave everyone. He did not blame his squires. He did not blame anyone else but himself for forgetting to put down the visor. He forgave his opponent. He calmed everybody down. He said, look, it's it's all great. It worked out fine. I'm uninjured. And if I was injured, it would be my own silly fault. You know, you can see that that's very different from anything that happened to him after the age of 40. Then if he tripped and stumbled, it was somebody else's fault and he probably would cut their head off. In, the, in his 20s, nope, nope, very nice guy about it. So he, he had at least one or two significant enough to be written about jousting accidents, but he wasn't majorly injured. And probably a lot of that was just his incredible physique. It's very hard to knock a god off a horse, but it's a lot easier to knock a 40-year-old man. I'm, I'm pushing 50, and getting out of bed is more of a challenge than it should be nowadays. Uh, there's more noises. So I'm assuming that was happening for Henry VIII as well. And no one's been trying to knock me off a horse with a big stick. So in, 15, in 1536 in particular, he was knocked off his horse during jousting. And the horse landed on him. And those two things combined, he knocked himself out for a couple of hours. They didn't know if he was going to live. It was terrifying. And even today, there's not a whole lot they can do with a, with a head injury that kind of massive trauma, you can develop a personality disorder just from that one blow. It is why so many people who have survived in the military can have these traumatic head injuries that can leave personality changes and a lot to have to deal with. So that injury in 1536 was particularly nasty. And he had already begun his personality change. He had already begun persecuting monks, like monks that used to be able to smart off to him. And then the worst thing he would do is send them, they had to leave the country, which, you know, exile's not great, but they're monks. They had other places to go. He went from exiling people and being angry at them and threatening them to just killing them. And he had started that in 1534. That's when he first, to everyone's shock, went after the Carthusian monks. It would be as if you know, someone very famous for loyalty suddenly turned on everyone he had ever known. So that had already happened, but it became much worse very quickly after 1536. So whether he had McLeods or whether he already had CTE, a huge injury like that would have exacerbated it rapidly. So that is why 1536 is very much a watershed year. He was already turning into a tyrant, but he just went full head chopper after that. Goodness, he certainly is a mystery, isn't he? A psychological yes. mystery. I think David Starkey called him or Eric. I have somebody did. <laughs> um, absolutely. So he did suffer from really painful leg ulcers. They're quite well documented in the sort of second half of his of his reign. How would his physicians have treated them? What would they have done, the apothecaries and the physicians, to kind of ease that pain a little bit for him? One of the things I was always trying to tell my students back when I was in, at, you know teaching at university many, 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 many moons ago was that we tend to think of historical people as not quite as smart or as human as modern humans. We even tend to think of quote unquote cavemen as not, but it's a lot harder to invent the wheel than it is a rocket ship. If you look at it in terms of these big hurdles to overcome, these doctors would have been very, very bright and they would have been very committed to their craft and they would have been very committed to their patient. Their theories on why things happened the way they did, they didn't have germ theory yet. They didn't know about antibiotics. They didn't know a whole lot about anatomy because the church had forbidden 
anatomical studies because it would have disturbed a dead body. So they were working from a hard spot, but that doesn't mean that they were stupid. And it doesn't mean they wouldn't have tried their best. And it doesn't mean that they were completely useless. So they would have tried things that would have had analgesic effects. Now, sometimes that would have just been brandy, you know, drinking it later. But, you know, any port, haha, in a storm. Uh, sorry about that pun, but I'm so proud of it. I had to use it. And then they would have tried poultices and other things on the long bones of his thighs. What they would have done wisely would have been to try to keep the ulcers open because they didn't know why blood clots could kill you. But they did know that if you, if a wound closed, the patient could suddenly stop being able to breathe and gurgle himself to death. And Henry VIII almost died, ironically, of a blood clot that looks very much like a pulmonary embolism, which is lethal today. If he hadn't have been such an immense physical specimen, he probably couldn't survive it. But for almost a week, he couldn't speak because there was a blood clot in his lung. He could only lay in bed and gurgle because his leg had closed. So after that, they were extra careful about keeping his leg wounds open, but they didn't have any antibiotics. And even the things that could be topical antibiotics, which garlic, garlic is actually effective. Honey is very antimicrobial. Honey could actually be used and had been used successfully in history for things like abdominal wounds. Um, so honey is antimicrobial works very efficaciously to prevent infections and wounds. Uh, Henry V was saved that way by his chirurgeon, which is where we get our word surgeon. A chirurgeon dug an arrow, a war arrow, out of his face, covered it with honey, and Henry V survived, giving us some wonderful Shakespearean plays later and Agincourt, you know, so they would have known about things like honey. They would have called in chirurgeons. However, honey can't help if your infection's in your bone. It would have been just as much a mystery to them why his infection on his skin kept reoccurring. They can't have known that it was osteomyelitis and that his bone was you know, fracturing tiny splinters from the inside. They had no way to treat an internal infection. There's nothing we can do today about McLeod syndrome, except pray for you. So there's nothing they could have done about that. Ironically, they might have been more sympathetic uh, in terms of his personality change due to astrology, of all things. Every doctor was a mathematician and an astrologer, as well as an astronomer. They watched the stars, but they watched it for reasons we now know as astrology. For example, what's your sun sign, Natalie? Mine, uh, Virgo. All right, you're a Virgo. I'm a Pisces. That would have given our physicians in the medieval time a wealth of information, they would have considered you to be at risk for certain ailments, especially I think, uh, is it Virgos are supposed to be, have knee? No, I can't remember because unfortunately I'm not a medieval physician, but I do remember <laughs> that Pisces are supposed to be particularly have foot issues. And I've always been weird about keeping my feet, my feet covered, which is why I remembered it. I was like, oh, that's ironic. Henry VIII's chart, his natal chart they would have done, was a mixture of Cancerian, because he was born end of June, mixture of Cancerian and Aries. So because he had an Aries moon, they would have assumed that with time, his personality would have become more fiery and as a more fiery personality. So they would have chalked up his change from a gentle going man 
to a tyrant, they would have chalked it up, oddly enough, to astrological things beyond his control as well as theirs. And in a way, they were right. It might as well have been the stars. He had no control if he had either CTE or McLeod syndrome, nothing that they, they or he could do. However, for his, things like his constipation, they needed to prescribe him vegetables. They didn't know why fiber worked. They just knew that you would go poo if you ate enough rhubarb. A fact I think would hold true today, although I have not tried it recently. They would have made him as comfortable as possible. They didn't have a whole lot of high-level analgesics, but anything they did have, they would have tried. So they did make every effort. There was just a lot of stuff they just couldn't do anything about. And Kyra, I don't think we can really end a conversation about Henry VIII's health without discussing or touching on the king's weight. So how did Henry's ill health affect his weight? And do you think that it may have caused him to develop type 2 diabetes in his later life? Well, I do, but I don't think the type 2 diabetes was necessarily from his weight. I think it was, it's one of those catch-22s. The latest research has found that it is not the weight per se that causes your illness. It's sedentarianism that's often associated with weight. Like a, a person who is even what we would think of as obese a person who is obese but exercises regularly will still have decent blood pressure and things. However, someone, even a thin person who is very sedentary, like, you know, the office job or you're typing books all day, and you have to be very careful to make sure you get enough exercise at that point. If you're sedentary, you're much more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and what we think of as metabolic diseases, which are actually sitting on your butt diseases. They can happen even to thin people. So Henry VIII, when his legs became so agonizingly painful, and after the jousting accident of 1536, he he just couldn't be as active. He could no longer go for miles and, you know, ride for hours and do all the things that he used to be able to do. So the worse he felt, the more he had to stay in bed. The more he stayed in bed, the worse he felt. I think he did develop type 2 diabetes, and I do think that because of the sedentarianism and either McLeod's or CTE, either one of those can cause late stage impotence for men in their 40s. And there was no magic blue pill in those days uh, to help you out. So I think his choice of, you know, Catherine Parr for his last wife, she had been married twice before and had no children. It was assumed she was infertile. By marrying her, he knew any blame for lack of pregnancy would be assigned to her if he was impotent and trying to hide it. Because remember that male potency like that was actually connected to, to their worthiness before God at that time, their fitness to be king, if it makes any sense. That would have been something he would not have wanted. It would have been one thing if everybody knew he had syphilis, but no one could know he was impotent. That was uh, a direct challenge to his kingship. So yes, I think due to his ill health, making him stay in bed more and more, which made him feel worse and worse, I think he did develop type 2 diabetes, and I think he did become impotent, and I think that made him extra grumpy. So if he wasn't, you know, he would have been more difficult to deal with, even if he hadn't had that radical change of personality, but it just made his tyranny all the worse. 
Okay. And I have one more question for you. And that is, I'm, I like tackling some myths. It's one of my sort of favorite things to do <laughs> on these shows. So uh, me what, too. Do you, what do you think is one of the, the worst or, or maybe not worst, but the most prevalent myth about Henry VIII's health that's out there kind of doing the rounds today? Well, you know, the myth of syphilis seems to be like a zombie. No matter how many times it dies, it claws its yep. way back out of the grave and stalks its way across the internet, you know, saying, you know, syphilis or whatever. That one drives me a bit nuts because it is, as a medical anthropologist, the understanding of uh, moral judgments being put on medicine things. That's one of the things I studied. So it's particularly annoying to me when someone's life is supposed to be reflected in their illness. Good people get cancer. Nice girls get venereal disease. Evil men can go their entire life in perfect health and die at age 98 disease, illness, germs, they do not care about your moral worth. They attack the human system. So that one bugs me as both um, someone with autism who likes logical things and as an anthropologist with autism who likes logical things. That one bugs me to death. I'm also bugged with this idea that, that people see him as, as though he were born 50, obese and bearded. I'm like, no, no, he was Chris Helmsworth way before he turned into Marlon Brando's late stage. So yeah, it is, it is, that one's hard too. I'm like, no, he wasn't always a bad guy. This belief that he was always a nightmare. No, part of the reason it got so bad is because it was so hard for those around him to understand what was happening for so many years. This was a man renowned for being, quote, gentle in debate. He was renowned as a scholar. He was, he impressed Erasmus, which we still name scholarships for. He impressed Erasmus with his rhetorical abilities and ability to remain calm when challenged intellectually. You know, so for him to wake up one day and go, nope, tyrant now, that would have been hard on the people around it. It'd be like if your beloved spouse, whom, you know, normally the worst thing he does is load the dishwasher wrong. If suddenly out of the blue, he started cheating on you and hitting you. You know, the first thing I would do, my husband's such a sweet guy that if my husband suddenly turned into that, first thing I'd do is get him a CAT scan because I would assume tumor on the brain. They, they wouldn't have known why he went, he went bonkers, for lack of a better word. His assumption that he was in ill health all his life bothers me or that he was weak all of his life, that he was weak and indecisive. No, he was just, um, he was a bit of a people pleaser ironically. He kept trying to make everybody happy, and that was a lot of his problem when he was younger. Then he stopped trying to make anybody happy, and that was a lot of his problem. Kyra, well, you've <laughs> certainly given us a lot of food for thought, and you've tackled it all so thoroughly in such a short time, and so sensitive. So sorry. So, no, no, no. It was, uh, I, yeah, there's a lot to think about, and I love that when you, you know, you've got questions and and that's just fantastic. But there is something else we do on each episode of yeah. Talking Tudors. So towards the end of our episodes, we play a little game of 10 to go. So these are just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So are you oh, ready sure. for that? What was the last book that you read or currently reading something now? Um, oddly enough, the last book I read was just for funsies to try to, you know, sometimes you're doing research and you find you're thinking too much. And so you just read a book for funsies and for clarity. And I just read a it's more suspense than horror, but it's called They Did uh, They Did Bad Things. And I forget the author off the top of my head. I'm so sorry. No, that's but okay. it was just, um, occasionally I like to just 
clear the mind with romance or suspense. I, I enjoy both, and sometimes I get both together because there's a lot of romantic suspense. Handy. So, Absolutely, um, yes, I agree with you. Getting away from, you know, the subject you're with constantly is helpful. What about a favorite subject at school? Oh, oh, it varied so much. The thing is, is my brain is a bit like a magpie. If I see something shiny, I want to know about it. I started out in biology. I got a degree in biology and then discovered that unless you went to graduate school in biology, there really wasn't jobs in biology, which sent me back to school for another degree that probably wasn't great for jobs, but it just fascinated me so much. It was anthropology. And I think I went into anthropology because anthropology will allow you like magpie to pick up anything shiny and put it in your academic nest. If it was in history and it could apply, you could use that. If it was in philosophy, I know more about uh, Michel Foucault than a human being not taking philosophy should know because we use so many of his theories in anthropology. You know, you get to read about medical systems in other countries. You get to, to do so much. So I've always been a bit of the elephant child in terms of I, I want to know everything, provided it does not involve math. I unfortunately <laughs> did not know it, but I have dyscalculia. I have um, a form of strange mathematical dyslexia. I assumed I was stupid. It turns out, no, my brain will think I'm writing a four and I'll be writing an eight. and that can really, really make you arithmetic challenged. And so when you were a child, what was one of the things you thought you might want to be when you grew up? Oh, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to become a doctor because I liked biology and I liked medicine and I liked helping people and I loved diagnosing people at random. And um, it turns out you, to get into med school in America, you need high grades in physics and chemistry as well as biology. And physics and chemistry, I don't know if you know this, but they involve quite a bit of math. So if you have Bs or Cs in physics, you are not getting into medical school. So I had to sort of realign, well, now what do I want to do? And um, eventually I thought, oh, I'd quite like to teach university, teaching anthropology and teaching medicine that way and sort of exploring, when I went into medical anthropology, it was to explore how doctors can interact with patients in a way that would help both of them negotiate medical systems better. But in America, it can become very disadvantageous for you if you are a 33-year-old woman who has the audacity to become pregnant by her own husband. Your funding can mysteriously dry up and jobs in graduate schools could mysteriously become more problematic. However, I do not regret any of my three children or my husband, so, but it is one of the reasons that I moved to Wales. I want my children to not have to choose between their career and motherhood, and they've got wonderful things called maternal leave policies over here. <laughs> I'm very fond of a maternal leave policy nowadays. And what about a new skill that you'd like to learn? Oh, I took archery with my son for a while and I discovered I'm very bad at it. Um, that's where I got to pull or try to pull a long bow. It's not happening. And then I tried horseback riding, but then I broke my back in a non-horse related accident. So, um, and it, it compressed my spine. My spinal cord is fine. I have all feeling and can walk, thank goodness. But it does make me feel like I, I'm risking stuff by getting yes. on horses. So mm, gave that up. So at this point, I cross-stitch and write and try to take long walks. Wow, that sounds good to me. And do you have any pets? I do. I have three of the 
saddest, smelliest little rescue dogs that have ever lived. We get our, uh, you know, all of my dogs have been rescue dogs because somebody has to love the ones that are <laughs> a little bit damaged. One we got as a puppy because his mother was the rescue dog. She was rescued for a puppy mill, pregnant. And so we got one of these adorable little Pekingese puppies. And since it was raised with love, since a puppy, it, um, his name is Marky and he turned out to be as close to a normal dog as we have. But the other ones we got when they were older, we rescued them when they were older. And one came from a good home. He just had to be rehomed because he was neurotic. So we've got his neurotic butt. But then we got one that was rescued from a puppy mill when she was a little bit older. And she is so badly broken. She didn't know what grass was and she still doesn't know how to play. And she's a complete terror. And we love her anyway. And we pet her extra and feed her extra because, oh, this poor dog. But she looked exactly like a scabby rat when we got her. No one else would have wanted that dog. So immediately we had to have the scabby rat. Somebody had to love her. Now she's quite a fluffy scabby rat but she's ours. Well, they're, they're lucky to have you. That's for sure. And what's a uh, favorite holiday destination for you? Oh, okay. So I have always been one of those to overheat. So I'm actually not one to like sand and sun. I love the ocean, but I'm quite happy with the British ocean, which is quite chilly because blue, sa- blue skies, blue water and hot sands, they're lovely to look at on the TV screen, but I immediately break out into heat related hives if I'm there. So things like Ibiza, which have crowds on top of it, those aren't my destinations. I would like to go to the highlands of Scotland. I like to go to Ireland and look at old churches. I'd like to go to Norway and look at Norwegian men. Um, <laughs> no, um, my husband laughs at me about that, but it's... Um, I just, I I tend to like Northern Europe for both the history and because when I'm on vacation in Northern Europe, I tend not to die of a heat stroke. Yeah, fair enough. I understand. I would, yeah. Is there any part of Australia that I could go to that I wouldn't die immediately on impact? Oh, absolutely. You could definitely go to Tasmania and you'd be quite quite fine any time of the year. (laughs) If I go to Tasmania, we'll have to meet up. I'll be like, no, come down. They've got little devils here. It's great. They remind me of my dogs. (laughs) <laughs> it is beautiful and it does have a lot of really interesting history. So there you go. And um, what about, um, what do you like to do to relax, to unwind? I, okay. So I am one of these people that is sadly and weirdly still madly in love with her husband after 20 years. So mostly being the most boring human being on earth, my husband and I tend to, when he's done working and I'm done working, we tend to do what we call snoodling, snoodling on the couch, which is where we sit very close together turn something on the TV, and then I cross-titch, and he he also simultaneously reads Reddit or something while we have on, you know, Call the Midwife or something equally nerdy on the background. So in terms of relaxation, we don't go to pubs or out to restaurants or have date night. Our date night is, you know, we snoodle on the couch. Our children all make signs like they're going to vomit because mommy and daddy are cuddling. <laughs> Because they're teenagers and you vomit when your parents cuddle when you're a teenager. So my teenagers flee to their own computer systems and my husband and I snoodle on the couch. In oh, a great that sounds perfect. And I love Call the Midwife, by the way. I, I'm just completely obsessed with it. It's so beautiful. So beautifully well, written, so beautifully acted. It's it's really one of my favorite shows. So Lucky Last yeah, Kyra, it. what's a, um, a historic, I'm sure you've got so many around in Wales, a historic oh, site that you'd like to visit? 
Okay, so everyone that comes to visit me from America, it's actually a prehistoric site that I wound up taking them to, is they all want to see Stonehenge because if you touch down in the shores of the UK, Stonehenge, and it's only two hours away, I have no excuse. So I have been to Stonehenge probably four times a year <laughs> for, since I've moved here four years ago. And you know what? Every single time I love it. I cannot lie. Every single time I see Stonehenge, I'm like, Stonehenge. But then I take them to some of the, I tell them that Stonehenge is great for a new build, but I want to show them something really old. There are megaliths. There are um, prehistoric passage tombs here in Wales within a few miles of me that are 1500 years older than Stonehenge. So I take them there and say, this, this was around, you know, this was around 1500 years before they built Stonehenge. He, 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 look how old. And that impresses them. And then I take them to old churches because I love old churches. And I am particularly enamored of churches that are built on or built around or still have elements of Celtic Christianity for the quote-unquote dark ages, a lot of information saved about, you know, Christian theology was saved by Celtic monks, both in Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And so we have these magnificent churches with the, the Celtic crosses and the on Ogham stones, this like combination, right when the pagan and the Christian were much, even more interblended than they are at Christmas. And so I love going to those. And then, of course, as a Tudor history buff, I've been to the Tower of London. I might never leave. All those places sound amazing. I'm just thinking I can't wait to go and be able to travel I again. moved over here for the tourism. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I, I don't blame you. Now, Come and visit. I'll thing, show you the old stuff. Oh, yes, please. Absolutely. Now, Kyra, the very last thing, sorry, then I'll let you get on with your day. Oh, is, no, no, no. I, I love this. Is um, our, our Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests oh. for something for our listeners to go and have a look at after the episode. Sometimes people suggest websites or books or music to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Well, of course, I love the talking tutors. You know, that one's always been one of my favorites. Um, and the Anne Boleyn Files. But I think anybody who's in, even remotely interested in the Tudors has discovered the Anne Boleyn Files. I have a, a, well, I'll call her a friend because, you know, but it's one of those online Twittery friends uh, who's doing a book about Tudors and disabilities, but it's not out yet. But I am very interested in it because she will be, we've talked a little bit personally about the fact that Henry VIII there in the last few years of his life, he would have been disabled. He needed a chair and footmen and basically a team of horses to get around. And when your body, when you go from a magnificent sportsman to someone whose body won't cooperate, it does change things. So I'm very much looking forward to that book. And of course, I think it goes, you know, all history goes from God to Eric Ives. That is the level of knowledge. God, then Eric Ives, then Jesus. <laughs> you know so um if eric ives has a particular theory and it disagrees with other historians i tend to fight in the eric ives corner i don't know why i'm an eric ives fangirl but there it is so in terms of seriousness eric ives but sometimes i also even even when it doesn't match up with historical fact which does drive me a little crazy i also like to read romances or historical um you know, historical novels that are not necessarily as historically accurate as they should be. But I love reading those too. And I, I can't help it. I'm a big silly softie. 
Well, you've given us so many there. Thank you. That's like due to takeaways we've got there. So Kyra, it's been such a pleasure. Your knowledge is just astounding and wonderful and you're so personable. Thank you so much for talking <laughs> Tudors with me. I'd anytime. Uh, there's always more in my magpie brain that I'd love to take you out and go, Ooh, look shiny. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.